Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from Mark Bryans that was recently given at our Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham. This talk is entitled, A Mother in Israel, The Victorious Place of the Widow in the Life of the Church. Mark Bryans is the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in urban Honolulu, where he lives with his wife and five children. He is also a member of the most recent Theopolis Fellows class, which he completed this year. This is really an excellent talk on the office of widow, as Mark gives a biblical case for a significant role of an order of widows in the church. If you have not already, we encourage you to download the Theopolis app. There's going to be new video and audio content put on that app every week, and it is completely free. So whether you're on Apple or Android, download that app, and we look forward to serving you over there. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Mark Bryans discussing the office of widow. I want to suggest that the seeming incongruity of the title of my talk uh, is matched by the incongruity of the presence of the widow in Paul's letter to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can turn there, you don't have to. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul has just uh, concluded going through all of the great sort of like the major orders of the church, episcopos and the deacons. I'm speaking of Presbyterian, so I won't. I'll just use the generic episcopus, right? <coughs> Bishops. Uh, and then he talks about that people will depart from the faith, and he calls Timothy to be a good servant to Christ Jesus, and then he gives instructions for the church, and all of a sudden, widows appear. And then he moves on and talks about elders. And, and widows, if you're following First Timothy, we can talk about chiastic structures and other things, but there seems to be an incongruity in Paul's uh, uh, letter to Timothy. You're like, Paul, what? I mean, sure, widows are good for the church to care for. But the way that Paul speaks about them, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Do you have to attain a certain age in order to be put on the list of charitable service? Having been the wife of one husband? So if you're one of the younger widows that Paul commands to get remarried, are you no longer uh, um, able to receive... Uh, if that second husband dies, uh, the charity of the church. And then he talks about the way that she's conducted her life as if, or in the same way that he talks about, um, some of the duties and requirements of uh, episcopos and uh, the deacons. And so uh, it seems, the widow in this place seems out of place. Like my talk among all the glorious and important other talks, the appearance of the widow among these offices or at least analogous to these offices, seems strange, out of place, important in its own way, sure, but off-theme, the result of poor arrangement on the part of Paul. An afterthought among the more pressing pastoral injunctions that he needs to give Timothy. Many will depart from the faith. Well, Paul, maybe you should have spent more time on that. I don't know if he needed to spend 13 verses on widows, right? Like, well, okay, we get it. We'll take care of them. James has told us this, right? And this is not unlike the way in which, on a social and political level, widows culturally seem out of place within the contemporary justice agenda. We want to end poverty, fight crime, make war on drugs, see racial reconciliation, care for the houseless, end human trafficking. These are all great things. These are all wonderful, wonderful things. Great, glorious, lofty, 
things. Things whose names carry political weight like the peal of trumpets. People respond to these themes. You can march to these. And then there's the widow whose presence among all these other grave agendas also seems incongruent and afterthought the result of poor management. And then, culturally, a sickness hits us in 2020, which seems to particularly afflict the elderly, among whom widows are a significant population. And all of a sudden, we as a culture are confronted with the presence of a widow again. Because for decades before COVID, the widow had her place at the, you know, uh, sequestered in the early traditional 8 a.m. service, right? She had her community rec center, though she was not participating in the same programs or places as us young folk. She had her retirement community. She had her TV. She could vote how she wanted because no politician prior to COVID felt the demand to curry the widow's favor. And then in March 2020, something funny happened. We suddenly, as a culture, had to care for the widow, had to care for the elderly, of whom the widows are a significant portion. We suddenly begin to wonder where she's been this whole time. We realize the majority of widows who live alone live at or below the poverty line, that they are among the most susceptible to scams and frauds, and that they feel with the poignancy purchased by length of days what it means to lose everyone and to be alone. They are the ones who, when their data is processed by healthcare information technology in hospitals and clinics into a probability schematic, raise the question for healthcare providers and insurance companies about whether or not the risks they take on the widow are going to pay dividends. They are the ones who suffer financially from the effects of inflation when what remains of their husband's IRAs and 401k devalues at rates incommensurate to their needs. In the push to gentrify and urbanize, their houses are the ones that are literally often devoured, forced into selling only to see the home scuttled to make way for high-rises and government-issued parks that no one asked for and which, as Jane Jacobs has taught us, will probably not be used. Startlingly, we have been forced to remember the widow. She has culturally, once again, done what the widow always does, interrupted us. And this is sort of the first claim. God does this in the widow. This is what the widow always does. Always the widow upsets, unsettles, disrupts, assaults us, and seems out of place. She always seems to arrive at us as an afterthought to all of the other important endeavors to which we have a pressing and prior engagement. And she arrives because Yahweh has remembered her. And he has called us to remember her. Here she stands as a witness the fact that we did not remember the widow. It's like the widow in Mark 12. Jesus in this combat with the Sadducees and they're, you know, sort of this rhetorical <laughs> fight and all of a sudden uh, conveniently, or if you're the Sadducees, inconveniently, ah, you know, there's a widow, right? And where did she come from? How long has she been standing here? Widows arrive in God's world amidst of hosts of sundry other things we are concerned with, many important things and they, they, they lay a claim to our attention, unexpected and unlooked, unlooked for. They lay demands on our time. Widows don't fit in. Widows are an interruption, a divine interruption. Widows are the measuring rod God lays against those who rule to judge the quality of our remembrance. The widow at Zarephath, as another brief example, is a measuring rod laid up against the rule 
of the kings of Israel. Just like the widow from Mark 12 is a measuring rod laid up against the leadership of those who govern the temple. My chief contention in what follows is that Paul hasn't made a mistake of rhetorical arrangement in embedding widows interruptingly in the order and the good work of the church. He's following the spirit, insidiating widows, seemingly in an order of some kind. Distinct from, but similar to, bishop, priest, and deacon, precisely because it is widows who in God's economy remind the church who she is while we wait for his appearing. Widows are, un- are intentionally interrupting us, and it is precisely in the surprise, oh, oh no, oh no, a widow, that God speaks to us. This is not to suggest that I'm here to argue for some sort of subtle or subversive form of women's ordination, or to give one of those worn-out talks about the lack of women's ministry in the church today, but rather to think biblically about the role uh, of the widow in a Theopolitan way. To bring it all the way around to the initiatory anecdote, um, speaking of widows amidst this lineup of excellent speakers and central gospel themes is not to suggest a radical break in the theme. It is, in fact, to see widows as unexpected and surprising as they find us, fitting perfectly within the theme of hope. Widows are the ones who uh, are ripe with the promises of hope. I mainly want to make a biblical case for some kind of ecclesially significant role of an order of widows. Though perhaps installed and not formally ordained to holy orders, uh, and I don't know the traditions that I'm speaking to you, but in Anglicanism we make a big distinction between holy orders where you are ordained and consecrated to one of the historic offices of the church, and then a whole variety of ministries and lesser orders, lay orders in the church. So um, my bishop will install musicians, install lectors, install Sunday school teachers. And so I think, yeah, again, I just want to be clear, I'm not arguing for uh, women's ordination, except I just think that the place of the widow could be more fully exercised in the life of the church and formally liturgically recognized. And this is precisely because I don't think that we can build a theology of widowhood that does not understand widowhood as essentially liturgical, because life is essentially liturgical. Everything begins in the liturgy, right? Gender is essentially liturgical. And building right off of Jim Jordan's excellent liturgical man, liturgical woman, which uh, it's an essay, you can still find it on the old Biblical Horizons website. If you haven't read it, uh, pull it up on your phone. Walk out of the room. Read it. If that's all you leave the conference with, that's a um, good time. Well, you don't have to do that, but um, that's fine. Uh, but it's good. It's good. You should read it. Uh, there's a couple of problems, if you look in your notes, a couple of problems with the way that we read widows, the way that we even sort of uh, culturally um, arrive at Paul's uh, lesson in First Timothy. And so I, w- I want to address a couple of these just so that they're, uh, we become aware of them. This is the water that we swim in. First, there's the cultural stumbling block. We live in what uh, Byung-Chul Han has called a palliative society, a society in which pain and death are uh, rendered as always aggressive moral evils to be avoided and redacted from human experience. If it sounds or reminds me of death, I do not want it in my presence. We must eliminate all witnesses to the crime of pain and death. <coughs> and therefore, it is of necessity in our culture, we find it necessary to eliminate old age and the long art of dying. So not only are we terrified of death, we are also terrified of the thing that comes before death, which is dying, right? 
And so we must, we must erase dying from the, the human experience. Caught in a contradictory web of conflicting demands, we cannot escape. We inhabit a culture in which Ian McKellen can play Hamlet in an age-blind production of Shakespeare, while simultaneously we do everything to sell products that eschew the marks of age from the body. We affirm age even as we erase it. The second stumbling block laid before us are the exegetical problems. Here we have the historical critical method that has run amok, run slipshod over the architecture of scripture. So that, for instance, one of the people who's done probably some of the best work with widows in both its biblical and historical uh, setting is a lady named Bonnie Thurston. She draws a lot from this uh, critical historical uh, method. And even while she praises the place of widows, she looks at the Old Testament and sees it as a system of oppression. This is Deuteronomy. As a system of oppression in which the widow is, quote, passed over entirely. And then sees the widows of the New Testament as an example of radical liberation that the early church brought and then was uh, sort of scuttled by those darn guys at Nicaea, right? One gets the same sort of feeling even from guys like Wayne Meeks and Bruce Winter. Uh, theological books that approach widowhood, few as they are, both theologically conservative and theologically liberal, are troubled from the get-go because, frankly, they don't believe there is such a thing as a biblical theology that makes sense across the canon. Instead, they see sort of these mere juridical or social or ministerial injunctions. Care for the widow. Don't take the widow's coat and a pledge. Loosely assembled, scattered more wildly than the sower's corn in Jesus' parable, amounting to little other than fodder for some large argument on justice writ large. Right? Widows get assumed into, we should care for the poor. Right? Um, but it seems that uh, there's something unique about the widow that Paul tries to highlight. Uh, along these lines, you have this big emphasis on cultural context, right? And it, it begins to uh, become a, um, a concern where we're more interested in looking at uh, what they did in the ancient Near East, or what they did in the ancient Greco-Roman culture. I, I was a classics teacher for five years. I love, hey, I love, hey, I love ancient cultural context. Awesome. I'm concerned, and in particular, I think this happens with the widow. Um, cultural context can become a, uh, a bridge or a barrier, right? And it's a bridge when we say, hey, this allows us to get deeper into the biblical world. And it can become a barrier when we say, oh, really what Paul's doing here is he's trying to keep the church up to speed with Julian marriage laws, right? Um, when it becomes a way to close out our participation in the biblical world. That's where cultural context and uh, that sort of methodology can become problematic. All right, and then the final one, the third category of problem is what I call um, the but master concerns. Which is where we seemingly with good intention say, is this really worth the attention of the mission? I'll I'll give an example. I'm a church planter in an incredibly gospel deficient neighborhood. Right? It's the neighborhood that all the churches want to go and do ministry in, but no church wants to have their building inside of, right? With one of the, uh, a, a local pastor, a friend of mine, told me just recently that, I guess, uh, our neighborhood, uh, in Hawaii we have these things called ahupua'a, which are like, uh, we divide, we make these, well, it's hard to explain. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a piece of this. So in, in Hawaii we have this island, uh, we have the islands that are volcanic islands, largely in the middle there are mountain ranges, right? In the middle of the island is a mountain, and then water is on the outside, uh, right? And then, uh, according to the ancient division of the land, uh, what they would do is make almost like pie pieces, right? And so every uh, traditional allotment of land in ancient Hawaii 
had its own sort of ecological and economic system where you could have all the resources from the mountain and all the resources from the ocean. That's an ahupua'a. Um, and so the ahupua'a that I'm um, in, or the area Kalihi from Malka to Makai, uh, has one of the highest STD populations in the US. Um, there's a massive homeless problem. We are the ones that receive all of the Marshallese immigrants because we um, did nuclear testing on their island. Um, there's massive needs. And, I'm, you know, and we're planting, and you know the constraints, some of you know the constraints of a young church planting life. And the consideration that goes into the time and attention demanded by the widow can at times appear, uh, appear to be a cost that deserves excessive waste. And so the ghost of Judas rises in each of us. From the pit to ask, Master, why this waste of the little church plant's resources? Couldn't you, as the only salaried church planter on staff, have spent this energy on the poor? To which I think, as a church that is truly hopeful, we need to respond, Leave her alone. She has done a precious thing in the life of the church. She, in a peculiar way, remembers my death until I come again. The foolishness of the widow's exalted, biblical, and as I'm arguing, liturgical presence is precisely the point. It's the foolishness of the widow that is the point. Church growth strategies be damned. Right? If we can, for a time, eschew these stumbling blocks and hear the biblical narrative, allow it to speak its own words in its own way, we can see the widow through new eyes. <laughs> we find that far from being a thing about which a few stories are told and a few sort of uh, uh, laws are given, some curious instructions in Paul's letters, the widow traces the narrative of redemption. We can begin with Eve. Eve initiates this narrative as the first finisher. Jim Jordan has talked about the way in which men are initiators and women are finishers. Men are barren dirt altars and women are glory and fire, right? And you can see this, for instance, even the way that children are conceived. Men begin something and then women for nine months finish that project, right? Christ, as the bridegroom, as the second Adam, carries the cross in the Gospels and the church, as his bride and his glory, carries the cross in the book of the Acts. The book of Revelation begins with the glorious bridegroom king who initiates and rips open the scrolls, and the book of Revelation ends with the finisher, the final, the glory, the new Jerusalem. Man begins the work of the sixth day alone. The arrival of Eve marks the end of the sixth day and the beginning of the Sabbath, which biblically begins on Sunday. Women finish. Women are the glory. And if you hear this and you think, man, this guy's just plagiarizing Jim and Peter. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for noticing. I've worked really hard to do this. Um, and then death and sin arrive in the story, and Eve's finishing of Adam's work is then tied with the fall. So the finishing work, the glorifying work of the woman, of the mother, then is tied with Adam's fall. To finish Adam's work then, after the fall in the garden, means to finish the work in pain and death. Adam will return to the dust, and Eve will finish his work by following him into the dirt. She is thus a kind of proto. Eve is a kind of proto-widow, even though I don't think with the biblical evidence to be sure of whether she outlived Adam, we know this. She was the first woman to die in the sin of the first Adam, the first bridegroom. 
She is the first mother and the first woman on whom the hope of being restored by the faithfulness of a future second Adam rests. Thus it is within Eve that the origins of widowhood form. Eve is pregnant, so to speak, with widowhood. By the time that Tamar is widowed, Genesis 38, twice widowed, there are established biblical systems in place. The widow wears a distinctive garment. She no longer has her bridegroom as a covering and therefore wears a distinctive garment. And the symbol here, if I may add to what Jim has suggested, is that the covering doesn't necessarily register a lack of covering, the widow's distinctive garment, but notes the way that the widow is covered by Yahweh. Yahweh becomes the covering for the widow. She rests under his wings. Yahweh will provide for her. He is her tabernacle. Here also in the Tamar story, we see the pattern of Leveret. The death of the first husband invokes a claim on the family of the bridegroom to provide for and redeem the widow. The widow, moreover, lays a claim to the land. You think about Yahweh as the owner of all the land in Israel, and all the widows of Israel belong to Yahweh. He is their covering. Then it makes sense, the Deuteronomic laws, about not harvesting to the edges of your field so that who can gather? So that the widow can gather. Why does the edge of the land belong to the widow? Because the edge of the land belongs to Yahweh, and he is her covering. It's his land. It's his widow. She gets the food from his land. His underlords, his under-shepherds, must care for the widows who are also his. Moving on to the next um, point in your notes, the, the widowship, the widowhood, um, the widowfree of Deborah is a contested issue. Um, I think that there are good arguments uh, for receiving Deborah as a widow, um, the widow of Lapidoth. Uh, and you're allowed to disagree with me on this, uh, but there seems to be compelling textual reasons to understand Deborah as the wife past tense, the woman past tense of Lapidoth. And therefore, when our narrative catches up to her, the, the widow, whose name means, uh, Lapidoth means like torch, flame, brightness, implying fire. This makes sense not only of the grammar of the text, but also of the role that Deborah plays. It doesn't conflict with her role in her household, because that role has passed on in the passing of her husband. She is the glory of her husband, and she is finishing his story. He is brightness, and she is brighter. As the widow mother in Israel, she gives birth to the next generation of faith. She lays demands upon Barak as a prophetess, but not like a priest. She is not a presbyter. She is not usurping or subverting or stepping into a masculine role. She is fulfilling a feminine one. Deborah arises as a mother in Israel, and the way she speaks to Barak is not the way a priest speaks, nor even the way a male prophet in Israel speaks. It is the sound of a mother's voice with all of the loving chastisement and oracular severity of the mother. You know when your mom says, don't touch that, it's hot, right? Chesterton talks about how moms are prophets, you know. Don't touch that, it's hot. And you touch it and you go, oh, mom was right, right? What dark, what dark sorcery is that? Don't touch it again. I'm going to touch it. Oh, don't touch it again. You touch it again. You're like, oh, she made it hot like a second time, you know. The liturgical role of the widow in the assembly of Israel is not merely to finish the, the previous generation, but is to pass on the work of the previous generation that calls forth and does not subvert future sons. Widows are liturgical mothers. In, it is in the story of the book of Ruth that these various themes of widowhood and the bride and the mother merge into a fully orbed image. Ruth and Naomi are both widowed. They are both without covering. They enter the land of Israel 
into Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, Yahweh's great grain basket. And they glean in the fields of Boaz, a bridegroom and a kinsman redeemer. In him, Yahweh provides for the substantial needs of the two widows, grain, bread, wine. Boaz also embodies Yahweh by covering Ruth in the fields, by, by uh, bringing her under his protection. Ruth doubles down on this, motivated by Naomi, who, like Deborah, gives birth to a plan, hatches a plan which will make a bridegroom of the man and a bride of the woman. She does this using the motherly persuasions. Ruth's cry at the feet of Boaz is a simultaneous cry of bride and widow. She says it as, bride, spread your wings over me, which is to say, spread your wings over me, take me as your spouse, and also spread your wings over me. I am a widow in need of a covering. It is to demand of Boaz that he fulfill the leveret. But widows also measure bridegrooms. God calls both Elijah and Elisha into encounters with widows, and one of the things that results from those interactions is a judgment against kings, the bridegrooms and the sons of Israel. Widows startle us with their presence and lay demands on us. Yahweh remembers the widow at Zarephath. Ahab, on the other hand, makes widows, like when he kills Naboth for his vineyard. Yahweh provides for the widow and their children. He raises the son of the widow from the dead. Ahab, on the other hand, kills sons, his own sons, and the sons of all those he sacrifices in war to pagan gods. Yahweh is the true kinsman redeemer who cares for the widow. And this is good news because Israel herself in her history becomes a widow. As the prophets tell us, like uh, in your notes from Lamentations or Isaiah, Israel has gone and bedded with other lovers and now finds herself desolate. Her bridegrooms from other nations dead. She has been a widow. Jerusalem sits, the beginning of Lamentations, like a widow. The exile leaves Israel like Eve, dead in Adam, the first husband, dead in her sins and trespasses. She is a widow, but God is the redeeming bridegroom. And so the life of our Lord is marked by widows. Anna, who like Deborah serves as a prophetess and mother of Israel, hails the rising sun, the Messiah, at his infancy. Mary, the wedding of Cana, functions like Naomi. Like Deborah, she tells her son, your time has come. Like Naomi, she has a cunning role to play in the revealing of the bridegroom. Naomi shuffles Ruth out the door, and Mary shuffles Jesus to the stone jars. Uh, son, they're out of wine. <laughs> it is interesting to note the similarity also in the way that these two widow mothers, Naomi and Mary, instruct the bride. Naomi instructs Ruth, go and lay down on his feet, and he will tell you what to do. And Mary looks at the servants, who are caught up in the bride of the people, and tells the servants what? Do whatever he tells you. One of Jesus' last instructions on the cross is for the provision of his mother. He gives her to the care of his beloved disciple. And then she's, you know, there with all the disciples on Pentecost. Not as an elder, not as a uh, presbytera, not as a queen of heaven, but as a new widow mother in a new Israel on the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost falls on the feast of Shavuot, the harvest festival. Pentecost begins a new and greater harvest of which Mary, as the widow for whom Yahweh provides from the corners of the field, Mary harvests the corners of that first great harvest. 
This is the biblical world into which Paul speaks concerning widows. Widows mother us forth in God's story. They demand that boys become bridegrooms and care for the poor and cover the naked. Widow mothers demand that we cover the needy under our wings. Widows tell us, the church, our stories. Widows, like Latimer at the stake, demand that we play the man in the face of persecution and death. Widows tell the church when the world has run out of wine. Paul tells widows to instruct the young women because they once were young women. Widows speak into marriages. Uh, Sorry. Widows speak into marriages and tell them, keeping your wedding vows till death will kill you. That's what till death means. Widows sit with the struggling mom of three who hasn't heard a full sermon in ten years and who no longer feels attractive in a bathing suit and who is always tired and for whom an affair or gossip or slander or too much drink or any of the several lies that masquerade as a variety on power and liberation might seem a desirable alternative to the difficult suffering and salvation of motherhood. And the widow says to this mother, this work will cost you your life and it is absolutely worth it. The widow looks at the young men and says, Lead well, the Lord has chosen you. The widow says to the kings of the earth, I am the plumb line drawn to measure the way you rule. Widows arrive among us on Good Friday and tell us as we weep over Christ's death that they know what it's like to bury a bridegroom. Just like the role of priest in the garden sanctuary is peculiarly gendered and uniquely anchored to the order of God's world, so also is the widow uniquely gendered, uniquely bound to the order of God's world. Additionally, widows, as a kind of lay order, are the only ones who are marked for the service of the church by loss and not merely by gift. Widows suffer the loss of the bridegroom. They embody faithfulness to the end which waits on a future bridegroom who will restore them. The widow, when she prays, like Luke 18, when the widow prays, her prayers have a power because she is praying and laying a leverit claim on Yahweh to be faithful to his promises in the absence of her husband. We often only conceive of the church's eschatological cry of, Come, Lord Jesus! as exclusively the yearning of a love prenuptial bride. And while, while that is also true, it is the cry of a young bride, uh, while it's also true, widows add a harmony line to the church's Maranatha. It is not merely the cry of the young, impassioned bride who hasn't experienced the difficulties of marriage or anything. It is the cry of the old bride who has weathered persecution trials, testings, and the death of the beloved. Maranatha is also the cry of a bride who has been faithful and true, like the name of the one who comes on the white horse. Widows carry the church's procession through time. Uh, Widows outlive rectors. Widows remember rectors that nobody else in the church remembers. The widow at my church is 92. The next oldest person in my church is 70. My widow has been saying the creed longer than anybody else in my church has been saying the creed. She is our link 
with the church historical. Touching her is touching Christian history. There is, to conclude uh, this sort of theological exploration, a final movement in the development of the widow. If Jesus is the leveret bridegroom king on whom the hopes of the widow hang and to whom the widow points the church, then at least on Good Friday, at first Good Friday, it seems the hope of the widow is futile because the second Adam died too. In Adam, we died and became subject to death. The hope of the widow rested upon Yahweh as the one who would provide for her, not only in this life, but in the messianic age to come. The seed of the woman would rise to crush the serpent. Jesus of Nazareth arose. The second Adam, the final bridegroom, the greater Boaz. And then on, on Good Friday, the person who would be the savior of his widows died and was buried. Is there a hope beyond the grave for the widow? We know the answer. Yes. Christ is not merely the second head, the better bridegroom, but his resurrection extends the hope of the widow beyond the foreclosures of the grave. The widow in her hope, and precisely in her proximity to death, embodies the question in her bones, Grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What does this look like in the life of the church? I, I give a couple points. First, quote, death, where is thy sting? Now, you'll notice uh, that I refer here back to 1 Timothy 5, where Paul discusses the order, list, office, again, lay order, lay list, of widows. The basic premise here is to suggest that structurally, in line with the other orders of the church, there is likewise room for a lay order of widows, biblically speaking, and this making ecclesiastic room for the role filled through God's history for the widow. Uh, additionally, Paul makes it clear that there are duties associated with the role of the widow, duties he does not apply to slaves, old men, or others he addresses in other parts of his letters. Rather, this is a specific role, and I think it's a particularly liturgical and ecclesial role yoked with the ministry to and service of widows. And that is a role to pass over a massive historical lesson that I, I chose not to get into for the sake of time today. Uh, attested to in the life of the anti-Nicene church. Uh, widows were there. And to summarize a long history lesson, uh, widows and, uh, as Blake Johnson argued last year, deaconesses and another order that emerged, uh, virgins, uh, are attested to in the life of the early church in its first 300 years and then get sort of confused, uh, um, compounded together, packed tightly into monasteries and then don't, during the Reformation and the uh, dissolution of the monasteries, don't return back to the church. And that sets us up as people that want to be biblically faithful uh, to have really confusing conversations in the late 19th and early 20th century about uh, the role of women in the church. We have to reinvent it, it seems. I, I don't, my contention is I don't think we have to reinvent this. The office was liturgically a witness that spoke to death. She had no children or grandchildren. The widow in the uh, early church was uh, at risk of being cut off from both the corn dole of the empire and the kupa of the synagogue, the distribution of the synagogue, because of her allegiance to Christ. Joining the church for the widow meant you may not get the uh, emperor's corn and you may not get the synagogue's corn. She was so close to death. She was a living witness to the resurrection. Uh, Paul gives the age of the widow minimally as 60 years old, which I think this is a safe environment to talk about, right? Which is the number of man, six, multiplied by 10. 
Think of the age of the widow rehearses a litany of God's faithfulness to humanity. Every year of the widow's life is a year in which God has been faithful and the devil has been confounded. The widow's years are a litany of all the years in which the devil failed to rob her of hope. The devil hates those who carry the image of God. I think the devil hates women in a particular way. And I think the devil hates widows in a deep way. He's had 92 years and he has lost. Jean-Marie, in his rather hopeless reflections on death and dying, which is it's a great read. It's just he's, he was an atheist, so um, death and dying is, is it. Um, he says, aging through which the not and the un, the, the nihil of our existence, make themselves known and become evident to us, is a desolate region of life, lacking any reasonable consolation, end quote. Death is a desolate region, lacking any reasonable consolation. The body of the widow, even as it decays, becomes a witness against such hopelessness. The widow proclaims the truth of the final leveret. Death for God's people is not without consolation. The valley of Achor is not without hope. It is a door of hope. She brings a body scarred by time and the forces of decay into the holy place of God's house, and it is not smoked. It is vindicated. Uh, Aquinas says that hope makes us younger. Hope extends our time. Hope multiplies our time. I heard a good lecture yesterday where somebody was talking about this. And uh, if you think about the way that applies to the widow, the widow extends that hope beyond the foreclosures of the grave. Uh, Peter talked last night about building cathedrals. The widow is a 92-year-old building project of the church. Death, Amari following Freud suggests, uh, is unthinkable. You, we can't, philosophers have tried, says Jean-Amari, we can't think death. It's so hard to think death. Death is unthinkable. We don't know how to process it. What does it mean? And we stroke our chins and we're wondering how, how do we conceive of death? Heidegger is obsessed with death, right? The widow, however, does know how to think death. The widow knows how to process it. The widow processes death in her bodies. She processes death with the burial of her husband. The widow makes death thinkable for the church. The widow in her passing through the various deaths of her life is full of time. The widow is dying, is close to death in her body. She makes death thinkable for our church. My daughter, my oldest daughter is seven. Uh, And we get to point her to the widow and say, this is the point. This is the point. This is, this is what death is like. This is what life is like. This is the point. The widow in the assembly in her halting procession with her cane, uh, and she, you know, maybe in your, oh, oh no, you know, uh, in her startling presence, in her being visible every Sunday before the face of God and his people, in her infirmity proclaims a witness against the dominion of death. In Anglicanism, uh, we draw the cross, sign of the cross over our bodies during the creed when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, the eyes of the congregation should be focused on the widow. I believe that her body will rise from the dead. Her liturgical role is a witness against death and to include us in the story of God's faithfulness beyond the foreclosures of our fall. Two, like Lois, the next point in your notes makes reference to Timothy's grandmother Lois. It is from her, from all that we are given in the language, that Timothy receives the faith. 
Just like Deborah to Barak and Naomi to Boaz and Mary to Jesus, there seems to be a place for the widow to serve in the role of passing on the faith to the next generation. I don't mean preaching in the Eucharist service or on the Lord's Day or or anything of this nature. I do, however, mean making house visits and talking with kiddos. I do mean maybe sitting the young men down and sharing the sorrows she's gone through when her husband and her were married. Sitting down with young wives and talking about the way in which to live faithful to your wedding vows. And giving the young married couples an injunction to avoid causing unnecessary pain for one another. I do mean teaching, even if only once a month, having the widows or widow share their stories and the history of the parish, the folklore of the parish, with the children of Sunday school. I, do you have in your churches, those older women among you who can say to the young women, and especially to the young widows, we, don't, we haven't lived in a culture that has a lot of young widows. In the next 10 years, depending on how American foreign policy plays out, we might be living in a culture that has a lot of young widows. Do you have a space for old widows to encourage young women, married, widowed, and celibate, in their respective callings, who can say to them, your daily dying is not meaningless, little sister. It is working for you the eternal weight of glory. Widows are our tether with the historic church. Let them pass that faith on. Thirdly, caring for them. Just because there may be a liturgical and parochial and symbolic role for the widow doesn't mean that we've now done away with the awkward aspects of caring for the widows in our community. James writes in his epistle to the church, also working from the same biblical vision of uh, widowhood, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Interesting how those two things are linked. How does your church care for its widows? Not just its elderly collected as a kind of lump stake, but for those who are widows according to the scrutiny given by Paul. Do your pastors, or if you are pastors, or your deacons, or the financially savvy in your parish, plan times to sit with widows and perhaps the elder board or vestry and discuss the financial situation of the widows among you? Do you have a service at your church to cater for the elderly, which is to say, to askew them and shuttle them off so they are no longer in view? Or are they included in the life of your parish? It's like the uh, sci-fi film Logan's Run, where there are no old people. Uh, The city that has no old people has no past and is not a city. And what I want to do is connect this with hope and not see it simply as another thing on a long laundry list of justice initiatives but to suggest that the widow offers for us in her body a theology of hope in God's faithfulness and the resurrection as times get tighter planning with your widows for their provision and celebrating the way that they run their course with joy is not additive to the gospel it is how we proclaim our hope in the resurrection. Fourthly and finally, Paul instructs widows to minister in prayer, to pray always with intercessions. And I think of an old Biblical Horizons lecture where Rich Bledsoe uh, says one of those wild things that he's famous for saying. And he says, you know, I'm just so grateful for the Pentecostal church. 
science. Well, I mean, just if it wasn't for the Pentecostals, who they, they just pray, and I think that all of the Presbyterian prayerlessness is covered by a great deal of Pentecostal <laughs> prayers, right? <clears throat> Uh, something of this, uh, that, was a, that was a faithful adaptation. Um, <laughs> and I think uh, our churches need prayer, and we all know this. Uh, our churches, God has given us people with an inordinate amount of time that can be gifted for the praying and the intercession on behalf of the church. And I think that that's, uh, there's no more I'm going to say about that. I just think we should get our old and elderly and widowed praying uh, for the sake of the mission. In conclusion, uh, I'll just draw from the Christian hagiography. St. Lawrence uh, of Rome, St. Laurentium, um, is a deacon entrusted with the wealth and the money in the coffers of the church. And guards come to him and say, hey, give us all the money of the church. And Laurentium says, come back tomorrow and I will show you the wealth of the church. And the guards come back the next day and Lawrence has gathered in the church widows and orphans. He says, this, this is the wealth of the church. And I think he was right. Orphans, because they are the future of the church. They are those that have lost a father, and they teach us that God knows to be a father to the fatherless. And widows, because they represent the past. They are those who have lost a bridegroom, and teach us to hope for our resurrection. St. Lawrence gathers the embodied future of the church in its orphans, and the embodied past of the church in its widows. And then they, they throw them on a griddle and cook them. Widows are right. That's a great story. They, they put them on a griddle, and they're waiting for him to die, you know what I mean, as he's burning. And if you know the story, it's wonderful. Uh, they, they're, they're burning him alive on this griddle. And they're like, you know, you know, recant, recant. And he's saying nothing, and they think he's dead, right? And he's, he cries out from the flames, Ah, oh, brothers, I'm getting a little too well done on this side. Would you turn me over so I'm fully cooked? Uh, their widows are ripe with the kept promises of God. And they remind us this. I mean, the widows tell us this. We are the future that the widows labored and prayed for. We are the future that the widow was promised in keeping the faith. We are the cathedrals the widows finish with their lives. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.